can open your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As you're making your way to Ephesians 4, a uh, quick word about tonight. Um, tonight we'll be back in Nehemiah 3. Uh, Nehemiah 3 is a survey of all of the gates in Jerusalem. Riveting stuff, I know. Uh, but this is what the book of Nehemiah is about. Um, it's about Nehemiah actually rebuilding Jerusalem. There's a real place, real people, real problems, and God sends a real person there to address them. And I think there is uh, encouragement for us in God's word from looking at Nehemiah and, and how he rebuilt Jerusalem. I encourage you to come back tonight at 515. This morning, though, Ephesians 4. Paul writes this, just one verse this morning in our remaining time. I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I pray God would seal just that little verse on your heart. I, uh, I don't understand hunting. I don't understand why men like to hunt or why anybody likes to hunt. I have friends that are hunters. They stockpile guns and ridiculous looking orange vests and they go out late at night to go camp and they'll sleep in a deer blind or whatever. And I have deer that walk through my yard every single day. And I don't need to hide in the woods to see them. But no, it's apparently the West Virginia deer tastes better or something. And so they go out to these strange places with expensive weapons and the crossbow is, I guess, the real way to do it. But then, because then when you shoot the deer, you get to actually track it for a couple miles and carry it out piece by piece, which is just... I think better for some reason. It's a mystery to me. And I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not explaining that I don't like hunting because of some kind of, like, I don't have a problem shooting Bambi. Um, <laughs> like, you got to eat, you should eat food that tastes good. But my problem with hunting is that it's a considerable amount of work to get what you could go across the, like, there's a butcher across the street in Giant. It's like his job, and it's cheap, and it tastes good. And it's just easier than going to West Virginia and having an orange vest on. Um, but I get it that some people are into the, the hunting thing and may your tribe in, increase. I'm not, it's not a moral objection, you know. Rise, kill, eat. Those are the words of our Lord. And, uh, so I hope you get what I'm saying. It's not an ethical objection about hunting at all. It's just a, it's kind of a silly thing, I think. And, but you can do it to your heart's content. Now... I think that there may be some of you that have my perspective about hunting. You might have that perspective about holiness. I think there is a contingent of people that look at holiness as, I mean, that's something that some people can pursue with their life, I guess. <laughs> Sure, you can dedicate yourself to reading the Bible and praying and the spiritual disciplines and evangelism and separating yourself from the sins of the world. I mean, for some people, that apparently works. <laughs> and they could go to Chad, I guess, and be a missionary, or they could be a pastor, I guess, or they could be a grandfather or a grandmother. Those are good positions for holy people. But not for me, I mean... There's so many other easier things to do with my life than pursue holiness. Like I can do whatever I want to do, for example. 
I can fill my life with my own desires and my own pleasures, and I can read what I want to read and watch what I want to watch and think about what I want to think about it and be friends with who I want to be friends with, but holiness just isn't for me. I'm called personally to freedom and fun, but you can be called to holiness. I guess that works for you. Now, I don't think anyone would actually articulate it that way. Don't get me wrong. I haven't had anyone come up to me and say, hey, holiness works for you, but I would never give it a shot. But I get the impression from conversations and personal interaction that there is a sentiment that is along those lines that is more common than perhaps we would realize. While it may remain unarticulated, there is a really a pandemic, not of a disease, but a pandemic of laziness towards holiness, a pandemic of people that think holiness would be something that is for a certain, like the Puritans. Man, they were crazy. They were so concerned about holiness. Good thing I'm not one of them. Now, what happens to a life that is lazy towards holiness is a story that you have seen and that you are familiar with, I promise you. What happens to a life that is lazy towards holiness is that life gets swallowed whole by sin. I mean, that's how that story goes. The person may be carefree and fun and living their best life now, right now, but check in on them in five years or seven years or 10 years or when they're trying to raise their kids. And it will not be all fun and giggles and jokes about how stoic the Puritans were. Often it's that kind of conviction isn't, meant with self, isn't met with self-reflection about maybe I shouldn't have mocked the Puritans. <laughs> of course not, nothing that extreme. But I'm telling you, a life that is lazy towards holiness ends up getting swallowed by sin. And there may be some of you here this morning that sin has in its grips. If sin is a python, there may be some of you here this morning that are wrapped up by it. And it will devour you. It will devour you. You're about to be swallowed whole by sin. Now, I don't want to see that happen to you. And the Bible gives weapons to you to fight off sin in your life. The Bible gives you the weapon to kill the python and, and throw it away from you. The Bible gives you verses like Ephesians 4 verse 1 that are meant to be arsenals it's meant to be given to you as a weapon to go to war against sin in your life. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul is, is pleading with you. He's pleading with you to man up and fight sin. He's pleading with you to take sin seriously and take holiness as a mandate from the Lord. I hope this passage wakes any of you up who are slumbering in sin. I hope this passage wakes you up if you're going about your life, if you're living your life as you see fit without a thought towards what the Lord demands of you. Some of you may have a passing fancy of, you know what, I should take my relationship with God more seriously today or eh, better yet, tomorrow. But there should be a sense of urgency to God's call on your life. I want to give you an outline this morning. I want to title it Holiness Should. And I want to walk through a couple implications of holiness from this verse. Chapters 4 through 6 are really, a, I'm going to describe it this way, as a weaponized application of chapters 1 through 3. If you're familiar with Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about God's sovereignty over your life, his Trinitarian call in your life, that God has predestined you from before time for salvation. He has sent his son to be your redeemer. He has sent his spirit to save your heart. That's chapter 1. Then chapter 2, the father has seen that you're enslaved to sin and has appointed good works for you to walk in. He has sent Christ to be 
be the redeemer and die for your sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to free you from the power of sin and to compel you to walk in the works that he's given you. Or in chapter 3, the Father has the manifold wisdom of the gospel. It is this precious treasure. It is seen, its beauty is most seen clearly in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit then dwells in your heart through faith and drives you to grow bigger and stronger spiritually in your faith. That's what the Spirit is doing in chapter 3. He's making you grow into a big and strong Christian. So you move from predestination in chapter 1 to chapter 2, the redemption of the Son, to chapter 3, the Spirit working in your heart to causing you to grow in maturity. That is all a very theological perspective of holiness. Or you could say the perspective of holiness from the top down, from God looking down on you. That's what holiness looks like. You're a slave to sin. God, before time, has predestined you for salvation. In time, sends Christ Jesus. In time, sends the Holy Spirit to save you. That's holiness from God's perspective. He wraps you up in Christ. But the book doesn't end with chapter 3, verse 21. The book keeps going. You get three more chapters, 4, 5, and 6, which are holiness from the ground up, holiness from, from the boots in the ground perspective. What does holiness look like from the perspective of those who are living it out? We have the theological background in 1 through 3. 4 through 6 is what God commands you to do with what you learned in 1 through 3. I spent a lot of time in chapters 1 through 3, as you're very well aware. <laughs> a lot of time there. I wanted to belabor the point. This is God's perspective. I had some people tell me, you know, your sermons of these Ephesians so far aren't very, aren't very practical. And they're very theological, not very practical. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> and then a few months, you're going to check back in with me and say, hey, where did the theology go? You keep telling me how I'm doing my marriage wrong. Yeah, you asked for it. <laughs> That's the nature of Ephesians. It, you're built up through chapters 1 through and 3, your theological view of the gospel. And chapters 4 through 6 is how you're supposed to live that out. And all of the I'm letting you know that from now through the summer or through Christmas or however long we'll be in Ephesians, everything we're hearing from here on out is grounded in the indicatives of 1 through 3. It's imperatives grounded in indicatives. When Paul tells you to get your marriage in order, to get your family in order, to get your heart in order, to get your mouth in order, to get your sexual desires in order, all these things are coming. And when he tells you those things, he's telling them to you in light of what we've learned in these first three chapters. In some sense, you almost need the big view of Ephesians. You just need to read it. You know, read it every day for a month. Read chapters one through six every day for a month. Get this book in your head and in your heart, and you'll see how it's all linked together. Now, that's not the perspective we're taking in, in church, though. We're not going to read Ephesians one through six every Sunday for the next six months. We've preached slowly through one through three, and we'll preach slowly through four through six to help you connect the dots that what God has done for you in the first half of this book, he wants to work out of you in the next half of this book. Let me give you your outline here. First, holiness should draw you. Holiness should draw you. And what I mean by draw you is it should create an urge inside of you. God should be provoking you in your heart to pursue a life of holiness. He says in verse 1, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord, which is, he's said that a few times already. You could almost go so far as to call it manipulative language, but is 
It has a negative connotation. It's a rhetorical use here. Paul's reminding you that he is in custody for the gospel. The things he's preached in chapter one through three is not from an ivory academic tower or anything like that. Paul's actually bearing the consequences in his body, in his health, in his freedoms for what he said in the first half of this book. He's in jail for it. In light of that, listen to him when he tells you what to do with your not in jail body. You're not in jail. He is. So go ahead and take some advice to him about what you should be doing without whining about holiness depriving you of your freedom. You want to know what deprived of freedom looks like? Look at Paul in jail. So he's speaking to you here as someone who has suffered for the gospel. And I think you could even take this phrase, a prisoner for the Lord, in even a more general sense. He is actually literally a prisoner of the Lord right now. But I think also you could take that phrase even differently, that he is, he's his heart and his affections are in custody to Jesus Christ. What is going on on the outside of Paul's life, his body in, you know, incarceration is a manifestation of what's going on in his heart. His affections and his heart are sold out to Christ. Christ has purchased him. He belongs to even his use of the Lord here. A Lord is someone who owns slaves. Paul is declaring that he is a slave for the Lord. He may be in a Roman jail, but he is a real prisoner of the Lord. In light of that, Paul says, I'm urging you. I'm urging you. I want you to walk in this way. He's pleading with this word urge. It's, a, it's an internal word. It's a word that is it's pulling strings on your heart. We have the English idea of pull your heart strings. That's this word here. In fact, this word is, could be even rendered paraclete, which is how the Holy Spirit is often described in the New Testament. It's this concept of there's a spiritual appeal Paul is making to you based on the residence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. If you have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And Paul is appealing to you through the Holy Spirit to work on your heart and draw you to holiness. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, when you come to faith in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who gives you faith. And as he gives you faith, he resides in you. And what I mean by he resides in you, and we talked about this a few times the last few weeks, is the Holy Spirit takes the words of God, which are from the very mouth of God, as they are sitting in your mind, the Holy Spirit applies them to your heart, convicts you of sin, causes you to understand them, and start to build a worldview out of these phrases you hear through sermons and through the word of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. He convicts you of sin and builds you up in Christ. And so here, Paul is saying, as the Holy Spirit is doing that, I am appealing to you to lead a holy life. And this appeal will not be unrequited because he's saying it out loud and you're hearing it and the Holy Spirit is working on you through the very words of Paul. This is like a one-two punch here. It's the words of God that are appealing to you. It's the words of Paul that are appealing to you. And the Holy Spirit is bringing them both together and begging you to lead a life worthy. To lead a godly life. You've been to England and written, rode the subway there, the, the tube. You've heard the proclamation at the stops, especially through central London, of mind the gap. Mind the gap. There is a separation there that, between the train and the station. And you're supposed to mind the gap. And, you know, I've heard that many times and heard it in movies and stuff. But it's another thing to actually be on the subway and hear the, the, the proclamation, the door open, and you go to step out. And, whoa, <laughs> could fall right through to the... The river right there, mind the gap. There's a separation between the solid ground and the tube that you were on. 
In a very real sense, this is what Paul is pleading for you to recognize right here. There is a separation between where you are and where God wants you to be. There's a big gap between chapters three and chapters four. You know, you just, your eyes just roll over it when you're reading your Bible, and you, which, when you read Ephesians one through six every day this week, as I know many of you will do, you'll just roll right through the end of chapter three into chapter four. But listen, mind the gap. When you get to this chapter break, mind the gap. You can even jot down in your column right there if you believe in writing in your Bible. You can even jot down, mind the gap between the end of three and the start of four. Pay attention to this. And what mind the gap means is not a common English uh, American English idiom, uh, when you mind something, you, we might say never minds, but to actually actively mind something means to be cognizant of it, be aware of it. Uh, recognize there is a great gulf between what God wants you to be like and where you are. I'm sure intellectually you understand that. But just think about that for a second. That God has a place he wants you to be in your personal life, and you are not there yet. If God is sovereign over the world, and he's the judge of the world, and he will judge you, that should be a pretty sobering reality on you, shouldn't it? That you're not where he wants you to be. You know, if you find out that you've disappointed your boss at work, that would keep you up at night. If you're a teacher and you have a parent who comes to you and says, actually, you, you, you're not meeting my child's educational needs. You're not doing it right in the classroom. And you start thinking about it and you realize it's true. You're not just going to schluff that off and go back to class the next day. You're going to be concerned about it. This is the image here. Paul's letting you know, mind the gap. There is a difference between where you are in your personal holiness and where God wants you to be. And Paul's urging you to strive for this. And as I mentioned, this is huge. He's talking about in your heart. Holiness in the New Testament, in the Bible, it's not about external conformity to standards. Holiness is an internal reality. It's about your affections. It's about what you love. That's where the action is. He's talking about what's going on in your heart. Mind the gap in your heart. That's why the word uh, parakleo here is so, so big. The, Paul's saying, I'm urging you inside of you, in your spirit, pay attention to this. This holiness goes from the inside out. It's obviously going to affect the way that you live, but you can't reverse engineer this thing. You start with the heart and then you work it out. And you work it out. And I think sometimes people are afraid of talking about holiness or they don't. This kind of talk makes them uncomfortable because they say, listen, I, I know I'm a sinner and that's why Jesus saved me. So if I start focusing on where I'm still sinning or where I'm failing, that's not going to motivate my love for Christ kind of thing. But it's not the way Ephesians is written. Ephesians is written so that it motivates your love for Christ. One through three should motivate your pursuit of Christ. God's sovereign predestination on your life doesn't remove the obligation for holy living. It inspires it. You read one through three and you're like, this should motivate, this should urge me is the word. Ephesians one verse four, God chose us in Christ that we would be, do you know the word? Holy and blameless before him. And this is the very beginning of the book. God, uh, God says, I'm, 
choosing you so that you would be holiness. Personal holiness should characterize the life of the believer. I'm telling you, the word holy is in the Bible, what, 700, 800 times? That means something. It should create a burden on your heart. Don't study the Bible like you study art. Don't study the Bible like you critique a movie. This is not a book to be admired, but it's a book to be internalized and then obeyed. A.W. Tozer wrote (laughs) a great Tozer quote. Plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in a person who professes it makes no difference to God either. And it's an easily observable fact that for countless numbers of persons, the change from no faith to faith makes no difference to either them or God. Plain horse sense, Tozer says, should let you know if you don't have a burden for holiness, there's something wrong with your faith. If your faith doesn't compel you to holiness, what difference is it making? I mean, that's not supernatural saving faith. Supernatural saving faith saves a person and changes them and urges them, draws them. It's the same language Jesus uses in John 6. You draw water from the well. He's saying this is the idea that you should be drawn towards holiness, urging. You should be compelled towards it, drawn towards it. Well, first, holiness should draw you. Second, holiness should define you. Holiness should define you. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word walk here. Walk speaks of the normal pattern of your life. It's, again, an idiom, just a word that means something different than what it literally means. Walking is literally moving in your feet. But Paul's saying here, I'm urging you to, lit- to, to walk, not literally, but idiomatically, just have a pattern of your life that is in God's word. As you're moving about your life, this should be your pattern. The Old Testament uses the Hebrew word derek for it, which just means path. You should have a, you know, in the Old Testament, your paths show show you where you live, what you think about, where you spend your money. And that's your normal function in life. And you guys have patterns. You know you do. You do the same thing. You look at your phone at the same times of, of the day. You have meals with the same people in your day. You listen to the same music or the same uh, radio program in your cars. And you have these normal patterns of your life. And so what Paul's saying is, I want you to walk, have those patterns, be godly patterns, not ungodly patterns. That's why you have to redeem the time. You don't cultivate triviality in your patterns, but you cultivate a disciplined desire for holiness in your patterns. Walking is a word he's already used in the book several times. Back in chapter 2, you used to walk in a way that was under the authority of the devil. You used to walk under the authority of the power of the prince of this world. But then later on, eight verses later, he says, God has saved you and he's called you to a life of good deeds, which he has appointed for you to walk in. Do you see the change? Before Christ, you were walking in sin. Now in Christ, you're walking according to how God wants you to walk. That was just stated as an indicative, just like a statement of fact back in chapter two. Now in chapter four, it's becoming an imperative. You must walk. I'm urging you to walk in this way. And... (laughs) You might think that's a contradiction. If you try explaining this to a middle school student, they would argue with you on this. If it's an indicative in chapter 2, how can it be an imperative in chapter 4? Or they would say it differently. 
They might say, if God has already called you to walk, then why is he commanding you to do it? If it's the reality, if you're a Christian, you're going to be walking in God's works, why is there a command to do it later? It's like seeing it raining outside and saying, rain, see, look. But that separates cause from effect. You pointing at the rain and saying rain doesn't cause it to rain. But the indicative in chapter 2 that God has appointed for you to walk in godliness causes you to walk in godliness. That's the image here. You are supposed to walk, to lead the normal pattern of your life in light of all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. I'll say it a different way. By using the word walk here, Paul is saying that holiness is not a pastime. Holiness should not be a hobby. It should be a disciplined pattern in your life. Holiness is not seen as something you do sporadically or occasionally. Holiness is not seen in how you vote, but in how you live. Kevin DeYoung writes in a book called Holiness, he writes, quote, it is easier to sign a petition protesting man's inhumanity or bad laws our government is passing than it is for that same man to love your neighbor as yourself. We often define holiness in political terms, or we define holiness in terms of what you abstain from. But holiness here is not abstention. It is action. It is walking. It is getting into the world and pursuing Christ. Holiness in the Bible is a radical life of virtue marked by affections for Christ. It's having your life filled with love for Christ that changes your vices to virtues sold out affections for the Lord. That's what holiness is. And Paul says it this way, Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's the command, pursue holiness. When I was in Chad, I spent some time with a missionary family there who has a, you know, the one with five kids, they have a pretty cool compound. They have a land cruiser, which is like the, you know, gold. <laughs> and one night somebody hopped their fence and was messing around in their yard and their dog, the one I said was trained to scout out the snakes and such, alerted to the guy breaking into the car and barks at him and the guy scampers over the fence and runs away. And, and this is a village where there's no law enforcement, there's no police or anything. So what you do is you go to the village chief and you tell the village chief, hey, this is what happened. And he, you know, everybody knows and respects him. He'll take care of it. Right? That's the way the world works. And, you know, on one hand, you can really rise to that. On the other hand, <laughs> that would fix a lot of problems, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, he goes to the village chief, and the village chief says, well, who was it? Like, well, I don't know. I'm an American here. I don't know who it was. I'm like, well, where did his tracks go? And the guy's like, I didn't even, it didn't occur to me to follow his tracks. And he's like, well, yeah, that's what you do. You follow his tracks, and you'll find the guy. Tell me, you see what kind of sandals he has, and you know who it was. Like, ah. He didn't go back and track him down, just left it. But as, we, as I, I hear the story, I left the house and I see my sandals on the way into the house. I'm like, oh, yikes. <laughs> this is the image here in Ephesians 4, verse 1. Where do you walk? You know, what kind of person are you? If you follow your sandals, are they marking the path of holiness? And your life is evident to all. You recognize that, don't you? Those around you know where your sandals go. Those around you know where your life is. Those around you know how you walk. The Lord does too. So first, holiness should draw you. Second, holiness should define you. It should be the normal pattern of your life. Third, holiness should lift you. It should lift you. And this is seen in the word worthy here. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The, this word worthy, it's the Greek word axios, and even this concept of axle, it's something that balances two things in, in tension. It's weighing out the other side of a scale. Picture a scale with balances on it. One side is weighted down. You put something on the other side, and that lifts it up. That's what this word means. Paul's saying, live your life in such a way that brings balance to the first half of Ephesians. Think of all that God has done for you, and now balance it out with your life. I'll give you another example of this. I'm coaching high school soccer now, which is so fun. And uh, I might split the teams up at the end of practice. And uh, I have an assistant coach who is better than the other players in the team. And so I'll have like one team of six players, but one of those is the assistant coach and the other team with like 10 players. And if you just look at the numbers, you're like, that's not fair. But then you're like, oh, that one guy is better than four of them. So it's exactly fair. That's balance. Don't focus on the numbers. Focus on the balance. So what Paul is saying here is you're supposed to live your life in a way that is worthy is the word, but that's the, that's the concept. Is that counterbalance behind it. Live your life in a way that balances what's happened in Ephesians 1 through 3. It brings an equalizing force to it. Now, how can you do that? <laughs> you look at Ephesians 1 through 3, and what do you find there? You find the unsearchable, immeasurable, manifold wisdom of God. You find the treasures of godliness that are so vast that they cannot be described in terms of height or depth or width or time. I mean, they go up to heaven, they fill this world, and they last for eternity. That's what you have in Ephesians 1 through 3, is that heavenly wisdom of predestination and election and redemption and regeneration. That's all given to you. And so, yeah, now you balance that out. <laughs> okay. I can't do that. I can't balance that out. And that's the point. It's supposed to compel you up. You're stuck in the mud of sin, and now you drop like in Ephesians 3 on the scales, and it's going to launch you out. <laughs> that's the idea. Of course, you're not going to balance it out, but it should be able to bounce you out of sin. Think of a car that is stuck in the, in the mud. You, know, you could just dig it out. But the other thing is you rock it back and forth, and then you finally can and bust it out. And what Ephesians 1 through 3 here is doing is it's rocking your car. It's stuck in sin, and it wants to push it out. And it pushes it out by you understanding how significant and beautiful and wonderful it is what Christ has done for you. The heavier you realize Ephesians 1 through 3 is, the more force it has on you in chapter 4, verse 1. So if you're stuck in sin, if you're having a hard time dealing with sin in your life, recognize that it might be you're thinking too lightly of Ephesians 1 through 3. You're, you're, you're thinking too small of your salvation. In your mind, the gospel could be as light as a feather. That's not going to motivate you to holiness. You're stuck in a life-dominating sin, and you don't have a full appreciation of what Christ did for you on the cross, it's not going to motivate you out of sin. If you have a little Christ, you have a little motivation to get out of sin. So you need a bigger Christ to get out of bigger sin. If you think lightly of what it means to be a Christian, you will walk lightly in sanctification. But when you understand that God's electing and sovereign power over salvation is a massive weight, then it should drive you forward. Now, don't, 
misunderstand this transition. I, I wanted to spend the full sermon just in this one verse so that you don't misunderstand what's happening. Because the, the error of works righteousness religion, the error of Roman Catholicism, the error of so many religions in the world is that they, they almost, you could reduce it to this, they don't understand this transition right here. They would say that you must work in order to be worthy. That you must do the sacraments, you must do these different functions, you must pray in a certain way, you must give certain things, you must conduct your life in a certain way so that you are worthy of salvation. But that confuses cause and effect. The cause is God's sovereign electing grace in your life. The cause is that God saved you. The effect is that you live a life worthy. You don't go backwards. You don't live a life worthy and hope that God saves you. You will always fail. Like I said, it's the, the riches in one through three are so manifold and so profound. You will never understand them, much less balance them out. Rather, the deeper you are in how beautiful the gospel is and how much God has done for you apart from yourself, the more forceful the change in your life will be. And you can lead a life that is worthy of this calling, not to become worthy, but because you are worthy because of what God has done for you. God makes us his children in an utterly gracious way. He calls us to be his children, not because of what we've done, not because we are worthy, but precisely the opposite, because we are unworthy. You have to start by recognizing you're unworthy. You don't deserve any of this. You don't deserve this. Then yet God gives it to you. And so you're motivated. God gives it to you despite your unworthiness. You're now motivated. It stimulates your behavior as you attempt to live a worthy life because it's by grace you've been saved. Well, Holiness should draw you, it should define you, it should lift you. And finally, holiness should separate you. It should separate you. And the word here is called, this holy life that you've been called according, and he repeats it, according to the calling with which you have been called. It's the same word though, kaleo is the Greek word to, to call, and it's this idea here that you have been called personally in your heart, and it's even a pun on the word church. I'm sure you've heard it said that the word church is ecclesia. Ecclesia means the called out ones. That's what this verse is where that comes from. It's a pun on that. It's a pun in Greek. You don't see it in English because the word church in English comes from the Scottish word kirk. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. But in the Bible, the word church is a pun off of this word that you're called out of the world. You're called away from the world and into fellowship with one another. You're supposed to live a life that is worthy of the calling which God has called you because you are called. You are the church. A calling in a broad sense refers to the individual calling, that God, through the Holy Spirit, calls you by name and draws you to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's ecclesia. You're called to this. God calls you out of darkness and into holiness. He calls you out of the world and into church. And this world, this word literally in the Greek world that doesn't know a church, this word literally means a personalized summons to something that is greater than you are. I think when I was reading a dictionary definition about this, I thought of, so I used to read the uh, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan books. Um, I don't know why. They were interesting to me for a while. They were fun. But there's a little occurring motif in those books. If you've read those books, you, you know this, that he's 
Jack Ryan is often summoned to a meeting with like a general or the secretary of defense or even the president in the most outlandish circumstances. Like he's at a, a cocktail party and he's just, you know, he's outranked by everybody who's in there. He's the lowest guy. He's the one, you know, cleaning the table. And then a helicopter will land and whisk him off to a meeting with the president kind of thing. And everybody's left going, who was that guy? That kind of image. That's what's happening here. You're leading your normal life in the world, just mucking about in the sin and the darkness and the mud of this world with nothing special about you. And then the helicopter of divine grace lands and out comes the Holy Spirit if you keep this image going. And he has a personalized invitation for you saying, you, Jesse, come, get, get on fast. <laughs> Let's go. And your life is changed because you're called out of that world into something bigger and better and holier, and you're called by name. This is why the church is those who've been called into one body, Colossians 3.15 says. We have a divinely ordained role in God's program. That's Ephesians 3.10. So holiness is not optional for us. It's what we were called to. God takes us out of this world and brings us into his presence through the gospel, which changes how we live our life. So do you understand this? If you're wrestling with sin, if sin has got you wrapped up like the python, it will destroy you. This is a story I've seen over and over and over again. It will ruin your marriage. It will wreck your family. It will cause you pain and suffering. That's what it does because the devil hates people and sin is in the world to bring death. But God saves you from sin through Jesus Christ. And he gives you his Holy Spirit who's not content to save you and leave you wrapped up in sin, but wants you to fight it off because of the power of Christ inside of you. But you have to lead the kind of life you have to recognize God's calling you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which is what he called you to do. He's not going to leave you impotent for this task. He called you to do it. And so you should be motivated to fight for holiness. It was 246 years ago today that a pastor in Boston by the name of Joseph Warren took the pulpit in his church actually moved from his church to the old South Meeting Hall in Boston to preach a sermon on the five-year anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. It was something they marked in Boston and this was set up to do it. This particular anniversary fell on a Sunday. And so he preached a message. 5,000 people attended. There was normally a few hundred to his church. 5,000 people came to hear this sermon marking the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Dr. Joseph Warren, I read his sermon this week, but he I was struck by his conclusion. He concluded his message with, quote, Our country is in danger, but not to be despaired of. Our enemies are numerous and powerful, but we have many friends, and we are determined to be free. Heaven and earth will aid us. You gather here today are to decide the important question on which rests the happiness and liberty of millions yet unborn, and particularly your own happiness and liberty. You answer it by living a life worthy of yourselves. He was 33 years old. That was his last sermon, by the way. He died later that year in the Battle of Bunker Hill. That message motivated hundreds, if not thousands of people to join the army and fight against the British. But I would change one word of it, and I'm sure you would too. You are to decide the important question on which rests the happiness and liberty of yourselves, to act worthy of yourselves. 
I think a Christian would hear that and go, no. <laughs> Act worthy of myself would lead to enslavement. It would lead to enslavement to, well, to the British and then to sin. <laughs> Rather, you are to act worthy of the calling which God has given you in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that you've called us from darkness to light. And pray that you would motivate holiness and godliness. I pray for anyone here today that has never put their faith in you. I pray today they would trust you and your gospel for their life. And we'd give you their life and receive your life in exchange. And that we would then walk in a manner worthy of that great exchange. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thanks for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to meet you personally at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and other church information is on our website at ibc.church. If you want information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been an encouragement to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.